This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Kroll-Bennett. And we are obsessed with flipping puberty positive. Puberty is a roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts. It happens to literally every human on earth. And it shouldn't be cringy. It should feel comfortable. Which is why we started this podcast and we write a newsletter and why we have a social media channel called Spilling the Puberty. It's why we have a brand called Umla that makes things like stinkless socks and why we write books like The Caring Keeping of You and This is So Awkward. Our mission is to remove puberty's cringiness and it all started with this podcast. We are so glad you're here. We are thrilled to welcome Christopher Pepper an award-winning teacher and writer who helps lead health education efforts in San Francisco public schools. He has become a new friend as we begin to explore the world of curriculum for sex and health education. And what we really appreciate about Christopher in particular is that he coordinates San Francisco's Young Men's Health Project, which brings teen boys together in small groups to discuss healthy masculinity and build supportive, positive relationships. Right now, Christopher's working on a book with Joanna Schroeder called Talk to Your Boys, which is designed to help parents have better conversations with teen boys about challenging issues like loneliness, consent, violence, and substance abuse. And if you know anything about us and the Puberty Podcast, you know that this is an issue near and dear to our hearts. In addition to Carr's book, Decoding Boys, it's something we think about, talk about, and live every day with our own children. We hope that you learn a lot from Christopher in this episode, and we look forward to hearing your thoughts. So many of you have written in to ask that we cover the issue of raising teen boys and addressing toxic masculinity. And if you want to learn more, you should also subscribe to Christopher's newsletter, Teen Health Today, which is an excellent, excellent resource. Listen and enjoy. Christopher, we're so excited to start this conversation with you, particularly because it is an exceptionally broad conversation in many ways, but we're going to get granular 
So let's start broad. You have your finger on the pulse of the current state of health education in this country. Can you walk us through, first of all, why it's so important you're preaching to the choir because you're on the puberty podcast, (laughs) but so you don't have to oversell this crowd, but can you talk through a little bit about why it's so important? And then can you get into, given its current state, where the holes are and the sort of the pros and the cons that you see or the good and the bad that you see right now? Sure. Thank you so much for having me on. Really appreciate the chance to talk about this. Health education, I think, is a really crucial topic in our schools and is addressed very differently from place to place. So when I think about traveling from one state to another in our country, what I'd see in an English class, what I might see in a math class, is pretty much the same from one state to another. There's not Algebra isn't taught wildly differently in Alabama versus Illinois. However, in health education class, we cover mental health, we cover substance abuse, we cover relationships and sexuality, we cover basic communication skills, how to get along with someone, how to deal with a breakup, how to talk to people respectfully, and talk about nutrition and healthy eating. So a wide variety of topics. And in some schools, those are handled by having a full year-long class for high schoolers, maybe a semester-long class or even a year-long class in middle school with a trained health educator who addresses things with a lot of skill and practice and time. And that is not the norm, but that is does happen in a few places. And in other schools, there's really no formal plan to address any of those topics. And they come up really only in a crisis mode, like, oh, something happened with substance use or something happened with a sexual assault or sexual harassment situation. And all of a sudden the school says, we have to deal with this and it's we'll have an assembly and kind of try to put something together in a slapdash way. And then everything in between. So schools that do a little bit of health education in high school, a little bit in middle school, sometimes a passionate teacher just takes it on and says, these kids got to learn something and takes it on as a personal project. What I would love to see is health education that's taught in a universal way that looks pretty much the same from place to place because we know what works and we know that health education provided in a consistent way with trained educators really has a dramatic effect on the lives of young people. And we see that our young people are are struggling with a lot of those issues today and it's a class that could really help. So let's dive into that a little bit. And I just want to point out, just like the Puberty Podcast covers a wide variety of topics, everything from dealing with homework challenges to mental health issues, to talking about sex, to loving healthy relationships and consent, right? So too does a comprehensive health ed and sex ed curriculum cover a wide spectrum of topics in order to teach and guide and support kids going through the long, many, many year path of adolescence. And you talk about sort of the ideal scenario, right? Where it's it's a year-long course and it's multifaceted and addresses mental health and physical health and all of that stuff. When you think about what gets taught and doesn't get taught, Christopher, What do you feel like 
the biggest thing that you think about, if you could say to a health educator or a parent or guardian advocating for health education in their school, what is the one thing that you feel like often gets missed out, but you feel like is such a critical linchpin? And I know it's like asking Solomon to like cut the baby in half, but I'm going to ask you because when we advocate in schools or in communities, sometimes we have to pick our battles. So like when you think about what's often not taught, but absolutely for sure must be what comes to mind for you? I think human relationships are sort of the key to so many of those issues. So when I think about, you know, substance use, I'd like to think back a step, like why are students feeling like they need to feel altered in the world? Why are they feeling so disconnected that they want to get drunk, get high? And it's often because they're lonely or they feel some shame about something in their life. That comes up again when you're talking about nutrition, when when you're talking about relationships, you know, dating relationships, when you're talking about friendships. So that sense of like teaching connection skills, how to be with other people is something that I would really emphasize. And it's something that we can teach, but it takes practice. And Mm -hmm. it's, you know, a lot of the information, if you just want to know how to prevent pregnancy, you can read a book and learn the factual information about that. But taking time in a in a safe way to practice skills, that's the thing that I would really emphasize is those relationship skills and those how to communicate the, the communication skills are something that really take practice and care and can make people's lives a whole lot better. Right. I mean, it's an interesting little path to go down for a second because sometimes people will say, this education does not belong in schools. It belongs in the home. Other people will say, hallelujah, I will take it all. I would like this to be as outsourced as possible. Please, please, please. And then some of the time, there's this sort of shared responsibility approach where families want to teach some of it themselves and not others. I would argue that when we talk to both kids and the adults in their lives about the value of a health and sex ed curriculum, they are not thinking about exactly what you described, which is the relationship piece. And relationships are taught in every other form in school. I mean, right, the school is so many of the lessons of school, whether they're the intangibles or history lessons and learning about relationships in history, which is what makes history, right, is relationships. Like the arc of that is so often lost. So I couldn't agree more. I think it's the most undersold piece of a health and sex ed curriculum. And I think that the place that it tends to get picked up, and this is where I would love to get a little more granular with you, is interestingly in educating boys. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I think it gets picked up there is that when we go into schools, when Vanessa or I go into schools and we teach the fourth or the fifth grade girls about what is happening during puberty, there's a lot to talk about because it's very visible and it's very physical. So we can talk about breast development. We can talk about body shape changing. We can talk about periods, right? And there's just, there's endless content. I can't tell you the number of times that teachers will come to me and say, there's nothing to talk about in the boy class. And of course, there's a ton to talk about. But you're like, right, you're going to go, okay, let's spend the next 45 minutes talking about this. And we're going to, because there's a ton to talk about in the boy class. 
And the default has become in a very beautiful way. Well, let's start with relationships. Let's start with talking about how you connect with people and how you respect other people. And so in this very funny roundabout way, filling the void of some of those sort of need to know topics, by the way, I think everyone of every gender should understand everyone's bodies. So I don't buy into any of this. The girls need to know this and the boys need to know that stuff, but that's a different podcast. But this, I do think the ball gets picked up a little bit in those early middle school years on the boy curriculum. I'm wondering if you agree, if that's been your experience, and then whether you agree or not, why does that ball get dropped? What happens? I think that does happen if there's a space for that kind of exploration. Often schools do teach something about puberty, but it's not necessarily a place where there's a lot of room for students to to ask questions or to ask deeper questions that would be about how they're actually feeling about relationships. So the way that schools have implemented this, it's often people being asked to teach puberty who are not raising their hand saying, oh, I'd love to teach that. That's my favorite subject. It's <laughs> people saying, please don't pick me. I'm super uncomfortable. I don't want to talk about that. I'm really worried about the questions that the kids are going to ask. I feel shame myself about something that we're going to talk about in class. And that comes up when people are presenting, if they're feeling worried or anxious or ashamed. And so the, I think, natural tendency of a teacher who's feeling like that is to say, there's a script. I'm going to read the script and there's no questions. You know, this is all I'm allowed to say. If you've got questions, go ask somebody else. On top of that, Christopher, we're also nervous or wary of engaging boys in talking about all of the kind of emotionality and communication and human connection that like we feel like either they're socialized not to and so they shut down earlier before we can even get to these health ed classes or we're socialized to think they don't want to talk about this stuff or can't talk about this. So like the kind of the easy way in, the gentle way in, the human connection way in where you don't have to talk about penises or vaginas or sperm or discharge, all of a sudden feels like it's a path we don't get to go down because we assume boys don't want to talk about their feelings or their relationships or any of that stuff. And yet, Christopher, you would say, BS. I think think that... (laughs) Do you like how I stop myself from saying the actual (laughs) words that was self-control? (laughs) <laughs> uh, I think boys are really hungry for these kind of conversations, but they're not necessarily going to feel safe in a classroom bringing them up initially. And I think because of the way boys are socialized, often the sort of first round of communication is often kind of jokey, seeing if they can make the trick teacher turn red, seeing if they can, you know, teasing their friends, all those kind of and which are communication tactics and they can, it's just part of working with young people. You have to be able to deal with those and then hang in long enough that you can move past those and say, I got your joke question. I've got a joke answer. Let's get to the real question behind that. Like maybe you're really wondering about this and I have real information I can share. How does it come up for you? So if we're thinking about, let's start with like a middle school classroom right? Where you've got a wide variety of physical development going on, a wide variety of academic development, of kind of emotional literacy, right? It's like, it is, as we say, the Star Wars bar. 
and everybody's all over the place. And yet you've been doing this long enough to know that even the boy in the corner with his hood up and his arms crossed and, you know, maybe even pulling his phone out of his pocket surreptitiously cares about this stuff, wants to know about this stuff, but needs a hand up out of the hole that he's sort of sitting in to get into conversation. What do you find, Christopher, is the most effective way to kind of invite the reluctant participant? Are there certain topics? I mean, you talked about sort of like mode, right? I'm going to let you joke around. I'm going to joke around with you. I'm not going to kick you out of the classroom, which I think happens a lot. to boys in sex ed classes and health ed classes. I'm going to hang in with you. And I think this is true for teachers. And I think this is true for parents at home. What are the breadcrumbs that can get them closer to you in conversation and communication? Well, just, I think, as you pointed out earlier, like these conversations sometimes happen with girls out of necessity or families feel like, oh, I have to have this conversation because my child just started having their period and we have to talk about it. And there's not necessarily a point where families feel like, oh, today's the day I've got to talk to my son about this. And if it feels uncomfortable, I think there's a tendency to let those conversations or those opportunities for conversation pass by with boys. In the classroom, doing activities that are not full group activities where you are you know, small group activities, turn and talk to your partner, write things down, giving lots of ways for students to express themselves and ask their questions that don't involve putting their hand up in the back of the class Mm -hmm. and being the, the brave person to do that. And I really like activities that involve helping. So thinking about whatever grade you're working with, if you're working with middle schoolers, thinking about you have a sibling who's in fifth grade and they just asked you about puberty and what happens during puberty how would you explain it in a way that you think they could understand and that help them feel more comfortable? So it's not the frontal. It's the like, as Cara and I always say, you know, ask your kid about what's, what do your friends think about this particular thing? Or what are your friends doing? Right. So that's where I was going to go with it is, can you translate it now to the home? Can you help adults understand in a classroom setting, there's a, a setup that allows you to let people write things down or to let people talk to the person next to them. Okay, now you've got an adult, they're one-to-one with a kid and they've had the aha moment where they realize I want to start talking to my child about this, which is great. And we can get to that in a little bit about when you realize you need to talk to a kid. But what's something that the adults at home or out of the classroom setting can do using your experience in the classroom? What's going to work one-on-one? So I think adults need to get clear about their own values because we know that families, the family members who are in the home are going to be the the number one kind of role models and influences on the children in the home. And their beliefs are important, but also their behaviors. Kids are watching what they're doing (laughs) and paying attention to how they how they treat people, what they do with their bodies, you know, what kind of substances they're using, all those kind of things. Yeah, do as I do, not as I say. (laughs) So, but, you know, to actually spend some time thinking about what do I think about teenage drinking? You know, what do I think about my child dating other people? How do I want them to treat people? And I think it's really useful to think forward a little bit, to think about this child who seems awkward and you can't imagine them ever finding someone 
who would want to go on a date with them, thinking forward into the future and very you know, will, far into the future, Christopher, <laughs> that they will become more graceful. They'll become more of themselves <laughs> and that they may find a relationship in the, in the future. And, you know, think about them when they're 30 years old, what kind of friends do you want them to have? What kind of relationship would you like them to have? If they have children, how do you want them to treat their kids? And then think kind of stepping backward from that. What are the things that need to happen now? And what are the things that need to happen over the next few years to get this unshaped kid that you have in your house on the pathway to being that adult that you'd like to have in your life? Right. So a version of it's going to be a hundred conversations. Yes. Right. <laughs> and and it's okay to just have one conversation at a time. Christopher, I don't know if you find this, but I find often parents come to us because there's a crisis, like their kid has been exposed to porn or they figured out their kid is watching porn or they found out one of their friends is vaping and they're freaking out about that, right? Like I find there's often very little, I mean, pardon the use of this word, but prophylactic conversation. Mm -hmm. Ha ha ha. (laughs) And I wonder if that's where part of the problem lies is like, we're always like, reacting and it's like we're upset or we're worried and it's we're not having these conversations out of a place of kind of chill and humor and calm and like if that also somehow sets the tone for how boys feel like we talk to them about relationships and sex and substances and and all of that stuff yeah because i get those calls too from i bet you do (laughs) from friends and family members my kid just did this what do i do And it's just not a great moment for teaching or really thoughtful, considered parenting, because there's often an impulse to yell, to be angry, to have some kind of punishment or consequence. And taking a step back, like, why would a kid be looking at porn? Why would a kid be interested in vaping? And then being able to have a a conversation about that and, and also recognize that those are pretty common experiences for teenagers now. Many teenagers, most teenagers have those experiences and go on to be adults who live in the world and have successful lives. They're things that you deal with and can address, but also they don't necessarily change the course of someone's life dramatically. So can you then run through a little, maybe a a hit list of some of the top topics that do need to be covered in this way, whether it's by someone like you in the classroom or by an adult at home or ideally a combination of the two, right? But in the middle school years, are there four or five top conversations that have these with kids? If you haven't yet, go ahead and do it now. And ditto for teens that in your mind, just top of your list. Sure. So I'm working on a book called Talk to Your Boys and the in the book proposal, basically, we just listed out chapter titles that are basically the topics. Talk to your boys about violence. Talk to your boys about substance use and so on. So when I think about topics that are important for middle school families to address, it's thinking about sleep, thinking about eating healthy food, how you treat people both online and offline, mm-hmm. developing a balance in your life of seeing other people having relationships, connecting with your family, connecting with people outside of your bedroom. If people are going on their phones or going on their computers all the time, how to find some balance around that. So basic 
life skills of, of how to be a person in the world who's growing and having more independence and making more decisions. I think having exercise and and emphasizing exercise, not with the point of changing somebody's body weight or body size, but just as really a mental health tactic of like, you'll feel better if you move your body a little bit during the day and it'll help you with your sleep and help you stay regulated and connect with the world. Okay. What's incredible about that list I agree wholeheartedly with that list. When I used to teach in schools a lot, I would do a parent night often where I would assuage the fears of the parents. You know, what is this person going to come in and teach my kid? And we would start the parent night by asking the parents what they were most afraid of, what I was going to do or say in the classroom. Not one of those topics, which by the way, were all the topics that I covered and are the key topics not one of those topics was raised because there's such a misperception of what needs to be taught. It's very, very narrow, this idea of what needs to be taught versus what really does need to be taught. So you're talking about very foundational skills that are, as you said, life skills, health and wellness skills. And I think that helps all people, whether it's adults raising kids or the teachers being forced to teach these classes, it helps all those people realize it's not such scary information after all, right? It's not so intimidating because what you're talking about is not the anatomy or the actual sort of defining sex, which are anxiety provoking classes for some people or anxiety provoking conversations for some parents. And that's okay, but I didn't hear those on your list. After we've been Zooming all day, we both hit the same wall. We forgot about dealing with dinner. But given what we do for a living, we know the importance of feeding ourselves and our families well. And we want it to be yummy. So we're psyched to have found Factor. Factor's chef-created, ready-to-eat meals show up at our front doors. With over 35 different options a week to choose from, Cara goes vegan and veggie while I opt for a whole variety since I have so many kids. Two-minute prep gets us restaurant-quality full meals, snacks, and smoothies. And Factor is less expensive than takeout. And because flexibility is key, you can choose anywhere from 6 to 18 meals per week, and you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Factor meals require no prepping, no cooking, and no cleanup. Our kids are thrilled by the lack of dishes. So get started today and have a week of meals ready to go, taking the dinner prep pressure off. Head to factormeals.com slash puberty50. Use the code puberty50 to get 50% off. That's code puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50. We know it's really tough when a kid's skin is breaking out for the first time or the hundredth time, but now there's an effective product that can help. It's called Phyla, and it's clinically proven to fix acne by targeting the bad bacteria on the skin without eliminating all the good bacteria. This rebalances the skin's microbiome, treating existing breakouts and preventing new ones. Phyla's active ingredient is a probiotic isolated from the skin of healthy, acne-free individuals. This means Phyla can stop acne before it starts by eliminating bacteria in the pores without irritating or drying skin. And Phyla is safe for kids of all ages. 
Dermatologists recommend this easy three-step system. Just cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. My own kids actually use this product. They love it because it works so well. Get 25% off your first order of Phyla with the code PUBERTY. Go to phylabiotics.com and type in the code PUBERTY at checkout. Link is in the show notes to get started. So we got the foundation, Christopher, and now we've got to move to the, for some people, more anxiety-producing, weightier, higher-stakes topics as kids get older. And I'd be curious what your top five are, you know, as you move towards high school and through high school with kids. Yeah, I think everyone should understand how their bodies work and how their bodies are likely to change during puberty and beyond. I think that's that's important information that young people deserve to have. And they deserve factual information that's clear and that's put in a way that they can understand and that they can process and that they're able to ask questions about. It's always been frustrating as a health teacher how much time I have to spend combating misinformation that people have learned from friends, from family members, have picked up online, just things that are not factually true. And so trying to reduce that, the amount of misinformation is important. Middle school is a time where some students do start to experiment with vaping or drug use or drinking. I found it really empowering for to teach kids about how their brain is developing. And I think of that as a strengths-based approach to say like, this is a time in life where this really cool thing is happening, where your brain is changing in a dramatic way and growing and you're building the brain that you're going to have for the rest of your life. And you can learn things really fast. So you can, it's a just a super cool thing that's happening for you. It also has this other side of it where it's a time where your brain is particularly vulnerable to anything that you expose it to. And, you know, if somebody is taking drugs or drinking, when their brain is developing, it can have a bigger effect than it might have on someone who's at a different stage in their life. And it's funny because kids are so used to us telling them the negative aspects of going through this stage of life that the kind of superpower of brain development, the plus side that you mentioned, is really awesome. And I think people forget to tell kids about the great parts of being in this stage of life. We're so focused on the mood swings or the safety issues. And yes, the substance abuse stuff, kids really do need to understand why those are actual risks, but also like how they can learn a language 10 times faster than we could ever, 100 times faster than we could ever learn it, or why they can like sit in all these classes and absorb this information. And when I go to a 20 minute class, I'm like exhausted from (laughs) sitting and listening for that long. So I love the idea, just the principle of talking about some of the positives and some of the superpowers and not just talking about the stuff to worry about. I'm wondering which topic boys, like what resonates with them the most and what topics do you get the most eye rolls from? Well, I've been fortunate to be involved with this group, this Young Men's Health Project. So in San Francisco schools, we've had Young Men's Health Groups, which are in middle schools and high schools. And they bring boys together, a pretty diverse group of boys in the room and with a a set sort of facilitation curriculum. But it's a small group with usually between eight and 12 boys together. 
And in that kind of environment, I've seen a lot of curiosity just about romantic relationships, about friendships, exploring boundaries, like, oh, she she said that to you. Are you going to stay with her? Like people are trying to figure out like, what are my expectations of how people treat me? How do I expect other people to, to treat each other? Those are conversations that I see a, a big gap that people are just not having with boys. And I think boys are really interested in those kind of things. And when no one's having those conversations, we see what's happening. People are going on YouTube and looking up Andrew Tate videos and um, looking for guidance about, you know, how do I make my way as a man in the world? What does it mean to be a successful man? How do I treat women? How do I treat people around me? We have a responsibility as adults to help provide space for those conversations. And I see that it's often not happening. That number of eight to 12 is a real sweet spot number, right? I would even argue maybe as small as four, because you can be anonymous in the group when you want to be anonymous in the group, but you can be a voice and feel like you have support when, when you say something that's a little vulnerable. I found it not only in classrooms, but even driving a carpool. If there is sort of a threshold number of kids in the car, there are more open conversations. It's really, it's amazing. You get over a certain number and sometimes it can be harder. It can devolve a little, which is what breeds great empathy for the teacher who's not trained to go into a middle school or high school classroom and try to tackle a subject that's a little scary to them or hard or socially charged with not eight or 12, but 20 or 30 or 40. And that number, sometimes the silliness factor builds or the, or, you know, sort of let's test the teacher and make the teacher Mm -hmm. blush piece pushes. But that, that eight to 12 is really an ideal number. And Christopher, people might be surprised to hear you say that boys are really curious about having conversations about relationships and boundaries and friendships. Like, again, I think people make all sorts of assumptions, which you are working very hard to dispel, that people assume they're not interested in having conversations about emotions and relationships. And you are here to tell us all they are very interested in the right setting with the right kind of situation too. Yeah, I'm going to push on that a little, Vanessa, and say that's why I brought up the 8 to 12, because I think there are a lot of adults out there who are able to connect with a kid and have a one-on-one about certain things and feel like they've had an incredible moment, but my kid would never talk about this in a group. And I think that's, you're bringing up the exact right point, which is that's the piece that I think surprises people, that boys are just as willing to be vulnerable with each other as girls are. This is gender independent. We just haven't given them the opportunity. And Christopher, you find yourself, and you've done this for a long time now, having the opportunity. So will you be the evangelist here for other people? How can they build these types of settings where boys are just even given permission to get vulnerable with each other? Yeah, I I do think... Having small groups for boys is a great way to do that. I love your example of the carpool as well. And But in that setting, you need an adult who can stay curious and mm. can hang in because part of that pathway to adulthood is people are going to make mistakes. They're going to say things that are really, they're off. They're you know offensive. They tried to tell a joke. It doesn't land well. And being curious about that saying, oh, I heard you say this. Can you tell me more about that? 
can you tell me why you said this? Or what did you mean? I love the what did you mean question. But letting them kind of explain and play with ideas and letting them change their mind. Child said something that I thought was sexist or homophobic or racist. And I'm going to jump on it and I'm going to tell them why they were wrong and make sure they really clearly understand why that was so wrong. And I totally understand that impulse, but I don't think that is a great place for learning. I think it's a place for the kid on that exchange to learn. I'm just going to shut up. I'm going to quiet down. I'm not going to say anything and maybe feel angry or ashamed, but I don't think it's a real place for learning and empathy and saying, oh, something I said was offensive to someone else. I'm curious, you know, I want to learn more about why, because I don't want to do that in the world. And that kind of deeper level of reflection requires some work and it requires people who are willing to Mm -hmm. hang in, even when somebody has said something that's a little awkward or off or offensive. Yeah. I mean, we hear from boys all the time that they feel demonized and prejudged that like they're kind of being accused of thinking or doing or behaving in the world and they're to blame for, you know, all of society's ills and they're, they don't feel like there's space for them to like share their opinions or to answer questions because they're just like, they're always going to be in the wrong. And we hear that particularly from teen boys, less from middle school boys and more from teen boys. And I'm, I'm wondering how we can set up situations. I mean, you talk about like, if they do say something that's kind of potentially offensive or incorrect or even a little dangerous. I mean, when I say dangerous, I mean verbally dangerous, you know, hurtful, rather than jumping down their throat, kind of digging in a little bit. But I'm wondering, Christopher, if you have other ways in which communities or even family structures can help create an environment where kids feel that freedom to kind of say things and pivot and change their mind and kind of explore things out loud without feeling like they're going to be demonized by everyone around them. I think it's a really hard thing to do because you, in a classroom setting or in a school setting, you want to be aware of all the people in that environment and you want to be protective of, you know, if someone's saying something that feels like sexual harassment, you want to be protective of the, the people who they're harassing. So There is definitely a point to, I think, establishing norms that are not about any one person, but just, you know, in this classroom, we treat everyone. We want to welcome everyone and make sure everyone feels welcoming. We don't use slurs. We establish these establishing agreements at the beginning of the, the class or beginning of the session and then addressing them because it's a, it's a violation of the classroom agreements. It's Mm -hmm. not something that is based, not something that's individual for that person, but it's part of protecting our classroom as a whole. And then in the home environment, I think with boys in particular, you know, this comes up when they're playing video games and they hear them, what are they saying to the other people they're playing with when they're on audio chat and they're yelling about how frustrated they are that the other player isn't as good paying attention to what's happening and setting clear expectations of like, here's how I expect you to treat other people and to be aware that there's, those other players are are real people who can hear them. They might be younger. They might be in a fragile state. Just to really be continuing to emphasize, you know, empathy and concern for other people. 
and really working those those caring and connection skills. I think that boys sometimes don't get as much practice with those. Mm-hmm. And you bring up two interesting scenarios that I think deserve a call out. One being if you either in a classroom setting or if anyone who's listening to this in the carpool setting or wherever it is, hears a comment that is not okay, but is uttered by not a child for whom they are responsible, right? So the scenarios are number one, how do you handle that in the moment? And number two, is it your responsibility to communicate it to the adult who is in charge of them? What is the reporting responsibility of the adult? And maybe we can just take each one of those because I think that that is what stops a lot of people who are not trained from even going down this road. So maybe we can start with, you know, what is your responsibility in the moment? We've all agreed in the heat of the moment is not the best time to address a statement sometimes, especially if you've got a group of kids who are being open and starting to communicate really well. And then someone tosses out a sentence that is just blatantly wrong, right? Or hurtful towards someone. So how should that be handled? I think is part A, and then we can get to part B. It's going to be a judgment call for the adult about if they feel safe, if these are kids that they have a relationship with, if their judgment about is someone being actively harmed in that moment that requires an intervention, or is this something that, hey, I'm going to be doing this carpool again next week, and I can get my thoughts together, and then before we start the ride next week, I'll have a little talk with everybody involved. So that's going to be a judgment for the the adult there. And many things you can let sit for a few days and then come back and say, something happened last week. I just want to talk about it. Um, it. It made me feel uncomfortable. And I've been, I've just been thinking about it. And I want to see if we can talk about it together before we get rolling today. So that is golden advice. I think so many people are worried about not addressing something in the instant it happens. And you know, to hear from someone who does this all day, every day, that to sit with a comment and to think about it and think about how you're going to approach it and then circle back when time has passed is actually an effective tool. I think that's golden advice. What about communicating, sort of reporting, if you will? If you hear something in a classroom or if you're driving the carpool and you hear something and it's not just a comment that you feel like can wait a week, but it's a comment that you think, if my kid said that, I would want to know. How do adults handle that? How do teachers, what's the teacher's responsibility in that scenario? So in that kind of public situation, kids are going to be looking for how does the teacher handle this? And when I think about, especially around sexuality and very common to hear slurs around sexual orientation and gender identity. And it's something that Schools have actively worked with teachers to say, we want you to intervene. And there is research that says that when students feel safer and feel like teachers are standing up to protect them from and make the environment safe from slurs and from teasing and from bullying, that it has a lot of positive effects for students of all sexual orientations. Mm. So it is an important thing to do. And it should not be targeted at a specific kid, like you're a bad child or you did something that was, it's more, I go back to the kind of setup of a classroom so that it's 
the norms are and expectations are clear for everyone and then have some space for learning like, oh, the, the thing that just happened was a violation of the norms that are on the wall mm. um, that we spelled out and we all signed at the beginning of the school year saying that we would abide by those. We all make mistakes. I'm sure you didn't mean to do that, but I do want to make sure that you know that I heard it and that in this classroom, that kind of language is not okay. I want to jump on that because I hear from boys a lot who say that when I get in trouble for saying certain things, like I'm not allowed to comment on another, like on a girl's body part, for instance. And and I would never, I wouldn't do that. But if a girl comments on my body, right, or makes a joke about my penis size or my weight or my height, nobody says anything. Like the teachers don't say anything. And they're like, it's not fair. Like, I'm trying to follow all these rules, but I feel like other people aren't being held accountable for the same thing. And sometimes boys are like, why is it okay for people to do it to me and not? And so to your point, Christopher, about that, it's like a universal set of principles and everyone is held accountable, just levels the playing field for all different kids. I mean, we do know the most recent YRBS Youth Risk Behavior Survey that we did a whole episode about and the data. I know you've done a ton of work through different CDC initiatives, Christopher, that like, yes, protecting kids from slurs and scary comments about sexuality and identity is really, really critical, but also modeling that like no one is an exception and nobody can say like, yes, a boy can't make a comment about a girl's breast size. And by the way, a girl can't make a comment about a boy's penis size without repercussion. Like it applies to everybody. And I think there's a way when you're not in a classroom, if you're in the carpool, if you're in your house and you're witnessing an interaction that start and, and one of these these sort of verbal bombs gets dropped. I do think there's a way of very gently, like the way we've handled it in our house is, hi, I'm here. And that's enough to sort of insinuate the, you all know the rules of engagement in conversation in our home. Now that's only with kids that I know really well. And then they're, okay, sorry, Cara, you're right. I've pushed it too far, you know, and that's that's the ideal situation. But I do think it gets complicated in that way for, again, for the non-expert teacher. As we wind down, I just want to land on the history of sex education in this country, sex education in particular in this country, and how it, I, I think, how it all feeds into this very conversation we're having. So sex education was catapulted to a new level when HIV AIDS became a rampant illness that no one in this country really understood other than about three or four years after the symptoms were sort of put together in a constellation and called AIDS. Actually, it wasn't the first name for it, but it took a few years for people to be able to understand that sex education was really important in terms of disease transmission prevention. And it really, and and this is something that you work on a lot and you teach about a lot, is the sort of catapulting of sex education on the back of the HIV AIDS advocacy movement. And it's a huge historical moment for the teaching of sex and health education in our schools. Today, some of the behaviors 
that existed pre-HIV AIDS sex education are starting to come back. There's less of an emphasis on safe sex sort of culturally among teenagers and young adults. And this is driving a lot of conversations in classrooms. And it's a big place to land, but I would love for you to share just maybe a brief comment about how your arc through sex and health education has been impacted by this movement and where you see things going, given where we are today. Sure. I went through school during that time where middle schools and high schools were realizing, oh, we have to teach about this. People were very scared about HIV. So my education in middle school and high school included fairly clear sex education lessons they were all taught with this idea of you could die. <laughs> it's very grounded in right. fear of fear of death and fear of the consequences of sexual activity. So that was kind of the, the starting place of this is a very dangerous thing. And we're going to really emphasize how dangerous this is. I think since that time, we've really grown this idea of comprehensive sexuality education and where it's really grown is mostly in the relationships realm that we're emphasizing consent a lot more. A lot of young people still don't have the idea that choosing to have sex with someone, it should feel good for everyone involved. So really emphasizing that, you know, it's an important, something that's, that's important and should be considered and you should understand all of the potential risks and also understand the benefits that most people during their lives do choose to have sex with another person or other people. And they choose to do that because there's some real be wonderful benefits that can come from that kind of connection, but that it's a serious thing to consider and that they deserve clear information about all of the, the factors involved. And I love the sort of consent movement and the idea that we're emphasizing healthy relationships and that we can practice healthy relationships that don't have anything to do with taking off your clothes or being squishy with another person that we're talking about, you know, how do you, you see someone that you think is cute, you want to go talk to them and they've got their headphones on and they're, you know, doing their own thing. Is it okay to talk, go up and talk to them? What if they tell you to go away? What do you do then? What kind of names is it okay to call people having those kind of conversations in a safe place in a classroom where people are allowed to ask questions and make mistakes and provide some learning for each other, I think is a wonderful place of growth for our society and is going to help people have healthier relationships long-term. And I'm really glad that evolution is happening. Christopher, you've landed us at a beautiful full circle moment, which is it's all about communication and relationships and respect. And so for those of you who are like, oh God, I can't have these conversations or oh God, I can't have these conversations with my son or oh God, I can't believe this is the year that school starts to talk about this stuff. There's amazing life skills that get developed in these kinds of conversations. And some of it has to do with sex eventually, but a hell of a lot of it has nothing to do with or is not only about sex. It's about every human interaction and Kids of all genders care about these interactions. They benefit from them. It helps them grow and build and become 
happier, healthier people, which is ultimately our goal for anyone we are guiding, teaching, or caring about. So Christopher, we cannot wait for your book to come out. We have to wait how long? Two years? Spring of 2025 is the... Spring of 2025. Well, in the meantime... It's like a save the date for the wedding. (laughs) Totally. In the meantime, we will link to your awesome newsletter, which I read religiously and link to your social media accounts, which are wonderful, which is how I originally found you. And then the wonderful Shafia Zaloom put us in touch. So please keep doing what you're doing. It is such incredible work and we're so grateful that you exist in the world to help educate and guide all these young people. So thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. We absolutely love hearing your feedback and getting all your questions. So anytime you want to be in touch, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. If you're looking for great puberty products like the Oom shorts or the Oom socks or the Oom bra, you get the theme there, go to myoomla.com. If you want more content, you love what we do on the Puberty Podcast and you want to have us come speak or learn more about our book or subscribe to our amazing newsletter, The Awkward Roller Coaster, go to orderofmagnitude.co. Remember, it's .co because we don't have enough money to buy .com. 